0: Hello and welcome to the podcast, Enemies from War to Wisdom. This podcast is dedicated to unpacking the often confusing and painful issues that surround human hostilities. In this way, we hope to open the door to greater curiosity, dialogue, and discovery between people who are poised to be enemies, those who are opposed to each other or have been hurt and rejected by each other. Our goal is to help us all enter into the wisdom that prevents chronic conflict from leading to alienation, fragmentation, or war. I'm your host, Eleanor Johnson, a videographer and artist who is the director of Emma Troupe, an experimental theater laboratory in New York City. And I'm here with co host, Polly Young eisendratt She is an author, speaker, psychologist, and psychoanalyst. While we come to these topics from each our own perspectives, Polly and I bring insight from our own lifelong dedicated practices of Buddhism that inform everything we do and think. We hope you find our conversation useful and that you will join us again and again. And now the podcast.
1: Before I start, I just want to mention that you and I are going to be meeting regularly for this conversation, so we'll have lots of time to develop these themes. And uh, so today we're really starting at the foundation kind of the building block. And um, so what is an enemy? You know, what we we all sort of think we know, we feel like, yes, we know what an enemy is. And we know the feelings that are stirred up. But in a very fundamental way, an enemy is what defines the boundary (laughs) of our own identities, you know, in order for me to collect a sense of identity, you know, that I'm a woman, I'm a certain age, I have certain conditions in my life and I also have certain things I identify with. In order to sort those out, I have to have something that's different from, that is not me, that is not self. So this idea of enemy really begins with otherness. It begins with the feeling of here's where I stop and where you begin. So at root, it is not, let's say a malevolent uh, impulse. It is more of a discrimination impulse. Now, the way that whole apparatus forms in human beings, uh, that is our species, homo sapiens, we have a very long, very dependent childhood We grow up in a relational setting called a family and that family also has stories and identifications that we are this kind of people, those other people are some other kind of people. So by the time any of us reaches, and I don't care which culture, society, language, by the time we reach maturity as an adult human being, which is roughly 25 years to complete the biological developments, uh, by that time, we have already got a pretty elaborate sense of who I am, what I like, what I represent, what my values are, what my ideals are, and that all requires somebody else who feels it differently, sees it differently, thinks it differently. So on one hand, this kind of sorting out of self and other, is a very natural process, not inherently malevolent, Mm -hmm. not really something that um, is designed to be a weapon, but it easily gets associated with the feeling that we need to protect ourselves, particularly in a moment of emotional threat. So um, as adults, we are very sensitive to emotional threat, You know, all of us are. That is, we're sensitive to things that make us feel like we're less than, that we're othered, that we're unknown. And when we feel that that's happening with somebody else, we can immediately go into, oh, you are the one who causes pain. You are the one who has failed you are the one who is the aggressive one, you're the perpetrator, I'm not the perpetrator. So what I'm showing here mostly is this kind of arc from the ordinary development of all of us in terms of self, what we could call selfing, and othering, you know, that we have feeling of this is the kind of person I am, this is the kind of family I belong to, these are the values, ideals, etc. And there are others who are different. So. That beginning in kind of, let's say, just differentiation of self and other uh, eventually gets associated with our tendency to feel that the bad guy is on the other side of the line, that it's not me, it's you. And uh, so then when there's a feeling of threat, when there's a feeling of fear, when there's a feeling of anxiety even... uh, we have a very uh, difficult time stepping back from wanting to blame this That's other right. so and,
0: and can we talk just a little bit about um you know how we how we come to learn about you know stepping back when we're in in the presence of these these conflicting emotions which is is so you know it's when we're you know seem to you know lose all our resources and and and, and lose our our clear thinking and And do you think there are skills that we can learn that will help us to just become better and better at learning this awareness?
1: Well, I always start with this very fundamental first step, which is that we have to become aware that we're doing something in order not to do it. So I want to be clear that what we're talking about in this framework at this moment is what you might call more subjective or intersubjective involvement with otherness, where there's a sense that we're creating an enemy. Now, it's a very different situation if violence is done against you unprovoked. For example, if you're raped, if somebody attacks you without a provocation, even if you're raped with provocation, or in a situation where involved, if some violence is done against you, that more objective violence, that more objective attack, that requires a different conversation than the one we're having now. And so I just wanna set that aside and say, we'll talk about that in a later program, but not right now. You know, when you get to be an adult human being, you have by that time a lot of reactivity to things that uh, you would say uh, you don't believe in or you don't like or you disagree with you have values against uh, and those are things that form for you a sense of otherness a sense of this is not me this is not the kind of person I am and so as you're walking around as an adult you perceive yourself as typically doing nothing except responding to the realities around you. In fact, you may feel that other people are provoking you, uh, you know, especially a partner, an adult child or whatever. And so the very, very first step in a process of gaining any skill in working on your own mind is to become aware of how you create a situation by saying certain things, reacting in certain ways. For example, as soon as you attribute a characteristic to your listener, to your companion, to your interlocutor, to whomever, as soon as you attribute a characteristic, the other person may react by becoming defensive. If it if it's not an ideal characteristic, if for some reason you you imply to the other person, oh, you're stupid, or or you're kind of mindless, or you always forget, you know, how to do A, B, and C. As soon as you imply that the other person unconsciously picks up the threat and begins to defend herself or himself, which then may be active aggression, that is fighting with you, criticizing you, passive aggression, withdrawing from the interaction, stonewalling, procrastinating, or just kind of freezing up. So as soon as the other person feels a threat, by your attribution, even if it's not conscious, if it's part of a kind of blind spot in you that you regularly react to somebody who says, I voted for Donald Trump in a particular way, then that evokes the defensiveness in the other person and begins to then evoke the threat in you. And pretty soon a a kind of a vicious circle is created Either between two individuals, between two groups, between two nations and in that vicious circle are these attributions of otherness and generally kind of negative otherness like, you know, you're the bad guy, you're the one who has the stupid motives that attribution keeps going back and, and forth. And so one of the things that
0: so many of us do when we're in this, this kind of kind of fierce reactivity when we've been you know, wounded or hurt or rejected or disappointed or we dislike or we're caught by our own idealization, and you're talking about a deeper way of, of, of working with the mind so that we're in these charged experiences, we have a resource that can help us to separate out a little bit. And see that it does you know like to that we can that the enemy isn't out there, but that if we could work within ourselves, we could probably diffuse and in i mean in many ways, I'm also hearing that you're talking about you're talking about a much deeper approach to dealing with conflict both personally and collectively
1: well, I'm hoping that it will be ultimately a simpler, more natural way of understanding how these things these terrible destructive conflicts, these repetitive conflicts take place because number one, we have a very strong belief that's a natural part of being an adult human being, that the world happens to us, that the people out there just sort of happen. We're not we're not doing something to create it. And that we, to some extent, are the victim of the circumstances. So what I'm saying is that there's the possibility for any adult human being to recognize Okay, at this moment, I am doing this. I'm saying this. I am perceiving you as really different from me. And I am cutting off from you in terms of your influence over me. So the very first step, because you ask about skills, the first step is the hardest step, and it takes people the longest time, to actually recognize that they're doing something that they're not just the victim of somebody else's or something else's influence. So um, that first step is sort of the very first building block and the reason why I would spend a lot of time thinking about it in a larger framework, which is you know, this is natural, we all do it, is because I do not believe that we have wakened up to this. I mean for all of our emotional intelligence, mindfulness, conflict resolution methods. I do not believe that people actually see the degree to which they create an enemy because they need that enemy, because they need somebody or something to blame for things that have gone wrong and for, let's say, the violence that is naturally in all of us. We want to believe that it's someplace else, that it's not within us. Uh, Consequently, and this is where, in terms of my work, these things come up most often. Um, It's very difficult for human beings to be in equal relationships. Right now, partners in marriage, to some extent maybe partners in business, uh, want to have reciprocal, mutual, equal relationships. And actually, in order to do that, In order to truly do that, you have to be able to solve conflicts together to get solutions that are negotiated between you. And what happens far too often today is that people just quit in that process. They say, I can't stand being with this partner any longer, or I don't want to be in relationship to my adult child because I'm tired of being fucked over by that person. I'm tired of being messed up by that person because, again, There's the feeling like it's happening to me. It's not, I'm not doing this. You know, this person has actually done something that's destructive to me. I have the evidence. I can see that it happened. But we don't see that we participated in it. I mean, even
0: as I'm listening to you and I'm I'm hearing that you're you're actually telling all of us that there is hope that we could find freedom in hostility. And I'm thinking as I'm listening to you, when I'm in that kind of... uh, space myself how hard even though with all of my work with mindfulness my spiritual practices my my um, idealized belief that we can find non-violent you know ways Mm -hmm. of dealing with all Mm -hmm. of this I find that you know I get thrown into the fire and I just want out of there Mm
1: -hmm. you know and
0: and Mm -hmm. it's you know and I think it is a, a real kind of evolutionary jump to kind of drop down deeper to say that we can find ways, we can begin to practice because our world is cracking up right now. We need to find, we need to find new tools, and 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 I really do. I mean, it's it's. I mean, I take a deep breath when I think we can find freedom from human hostility and we can understand enemy in this way. It it it's a huge evolutionary leap. Holly. I like
1: the idea of evolutionary leap. Yeah, and you know, I would say, I would emphasize the evolution of consciousness, instead of the biological evolution. Because I think principally, uh, human beings are unique organisms in regard to consciousness. So the advantage that we have, which is also a disadvantage, over the other animals here on Earth, is that we can think about our own thoughts and feelings we can take that step back, it's called decentering, and look at what our motivations are. We can reflect on the action that we've taken after we've taken it and say, whoa, what did I create there? No other animal can do that. No other animal has a responsibility for that. Now, it also carries, as I say, a kind of detriment in that, that capacity, to step back and look at our own thoughts and feelings, also gives us the capacity to gossip, to talk about things that are not present. That is, you know, no other animal can say to another animal, oh, I saw Joe this morning and Joe was cheating on his wife. You know, other animals can't communicate what they don't see in the moment. What we do as human beings is, uh, and Harari's book Sapiens talks a lot about this, Yuval Harari's book, is that we can talk about things that are not present because we can decenter from the present moment. We can also examine our thoughts and feelings. So the unique human intelligence in the development of consciousness is the capacity to examine ourselves, to examine our motives, to see what we're creating, to recognize that we have a power in creating the sense of reality. It doesn't happen to us; right. it's coming with us. Uh, from a Buddhist point of view, it's called dependent arising. I was going
0: to ask you about yeah. about um, you know, as a psychologist and psychoanalyst and someone who's been on the cutting edge of you know the mental health field for so many years, and also as a very devout. Buddhist practitioner, if that has also influenced your way or expanded your way of understanding consciousness well, by it, having a spiritual base in addition to the psychological yeah, right?
1: Right. Well, I mean, both of them together, being a psychoanalyst and a Buddhist practitioner. And, you know, of course, as a Buddhist, I, I want to say, of course, I practice mindfulness, but it's Buddhism itself that attracts me because... It's a frame of reference on the world. So the, the the Buddhist frame of reference is that from moment to moment to moment we have a kind of modicum, tiny modicum of freedom in which we can actually pay attention to what we're doing. And it's very important from this Buddhist perspective because we also do create the other with our own thoughts and feelings. And this is not voodoo. This is just in the way I talked about it earlier. We have a reaction. We begin to perceive the other person in a certain way. We say things, we evoke things. The other person begins to have a reaction and it becomes cyclical. We are arising together. So from a Buddhist perspective, we have a responsibility to know that. From a psychoanalytic perspective, we find some tools to actually examine it. We, we begin to recognize on a moment to moment basis, that we have some repetitive or fixed habits that the various psychoanalysts could call psychological complexes. I'm a Jungian, so that's Jung's term, is an unconscious complex, is repetitive, uh, and leads us towards always seeing things in the same way, uh, feeling things in the same way, hearing things in the same way. Uh, And then from a Freudian perspective, uh, we could call it a repetition compulsion uh, from some psychoanalytic perspectives, it's called projection or projective identification. So there are a lot of technical words you know, that I don't really like to go into because I think we can understand it best if we just work from our own examples in our own lives how we feel when we're with somebody that we strongly, strongly disagree with or strongly distrust, even if it's someone we're supposed to love. So yeah, I take my cues, a lot of my cues, From the combination of Buddhism and psychoanalysis and then also from uh, having worked with people, uh, you know, now over many, many years in individual psychotherapy, uh, psychoanalysis and couples therapy and the couples therapy in particular, I can see how the two people are creating each other and they get locked into a food fight. And then that food fight starts to diminish their capacity to solve a conflict, to work on the problems in their lives. And then it starts to diminish their intimacy and their enjoyment of each other because they have created uh, a sense of being with an enemy. There's a feeling like, I can't trust you. I, I don't want to be around you because you intentionally hurt me. You know me, you know what kind of person I am, and you've done these things to harm and hurt me. And so I cannot trust you. So that's the kind of couple's dance right, that I right. see.
0: And also, you know, uh, the whole issue of trust. I mean, once trust is, once that's broken, you know, we, we get so lost. You know, we just, you know, so... Mm,
1: what, do you, what do you yeah. think trust Yes, I mean, and I, I mean it in a very basic way. Like if yeah. you if you trust your bank, or you yeah. trust your friend, or you trust yourself, what's going on there? Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, you, you're talking about you know, from from you know, as a psychoanalyst and psychologist, I mean, talking about you know, the the interpersonal subjective world, and I, as an artist, have been working with you know, human imagination and 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 and, and kind of creativity where we reimagine. So it's like, how do we go into these deeper themes where we find, uh, you know, the groundwork, the common groundwork, where we can hold trust? Like one of the things I'm working on in my in this film that I'm working on has to do with, you know, what is the true meaning of peace? What is the true meaning of democracy? What is equality? What are all of these big issues? And and where do we find an ability to stand firm? especially now when, when the ground is, is moving in all these different directions and, and, and things are becoming so divisive and um, disjointed. And- so would you
1: say that trust is somewhat synonymous with standing firm? It, would you say that that's, uh, in, in your work, that what you call standing firm, finding a solid ground, uh, would be a good a way of describing trust?
0: Well I mean what what allows us to believe in humanity? What allows us to believe in the possibility that something can change? Um, what allows us to believe that we can transform suffering? What allows us to believe that we could we could um, have a healthy relationship to all of this out projection or what we call you know creating enemies. I mean, what is that substance that that h- allows us to hold firm in our in our hearts and in our minds that we believe this is real?
1: Well, I actually think I, I, that that substance is experience in being free, but I I think that the other issue of trust is a little different. Uh-huh. You know, because we started with trust right. because you brought up the idea of right. trust, right. and I said, and then you kind of brought up the idea of standing firm, right? And so. Um, let's stick with trust a little bit, and then yeah. we can go to the other thing but uh the um that sense of trust usually is the feeling that we belong it's uh, the feeling of being at ease
0: so we have to have the, i mean again another another way of- talk, i mean that's great in terms of feeling that we belong that allows you to stand firm and, right and and um also you know to to develop the awareness
1: where we notice our beliefs well so if you're if your own feeling of being at ease and belonging, if it's dependent upon certain kinds of beliefs being met, like certain right. sorts of ideals, right. you know, that you, that you say to yourself, okay, I need to feel safe right. in order to trust right. this teacher, let's right. say. Right. If, if it absolutely depends on that, then you never have any freedom from your feeling of being threatened when it happens. If your sense of trust depends instead on, let's say, this process that we're beginning to describe, which is uh, about being awake to your own tendencies, being able to work with your own thoughts and feelings and your own internal stories, if you trust you can do that, then the groundwork for feeling like you belong here on earth, it shifts. It shifts to this other thing. It shifts to a process. You begin to recognize, oh, I can engage in this process anywhere, with anyone, under almost any circumstances. Maybe not any, but like if somebody had a gun in my face, it would be hard. But most of the time, in fact, I've never had a gun in my face in my entire life. That's always just been a hypothesis you know and there's a
0: part of me when i'm listening to this that i say oh you know now we're we're kind of awakening to this dimension of consciousness where people can actually become saints i mean it's like it's so noble to be able to i mean to be able to be in a situation like that moment to moment where we could we, where we could do that where we could we could we could transform these negative emotions we could transform these hostilities i mean that it just Well feels... i mean
1: i think you probably like <laughs> like the saints, um, I mean, I feel like it's it's the it's the possibility of becoming human, yeah. because yeah. human beings can do something I mean, that other is, animals it's, can't do. Yeah, it we, is
0: an evolutionary leap, you know, and it
1: would really, if if we actually can see what we can do, this this capacity to decenter took us to the moon when we'd never been to the moon because we went step by step by step. Oh, if I go here, it will look like this. If I go there, it looks like that. So. This is the same mechanism whereby we can examine our own motivation, our own uh, blind spots, our own, you know, sort of moment to moment experiences and hold open the possibility that we can go someplace that we've never been before. You know, so a lot of times people come to couples therapy, for example, and they say, you know, we've, we've been together for 30 years, we we've seen five couples therapists, and yet we still cannot talk about this event that took place. Maybe they've, you know, had a terrible tragedy in their lives, child's death, or maybe they've had not something that looks like a tragedy. So that one person said something, 10 years ago that was really, really mean and insulting to the other person and they, the two people cannot seem to recover from that. So people will come to therapy and say, well, you know, we want to do this completely differently. We want to learn to trust each other. But rarely does anybody come to couples therapy and say, you know, I realize that I don't see my partner fairly. I don't actually allow the other person to be herself or himself or as that person is, uh, but that I'm always pushing and pulling on it. I'm always trying to get the other person to be the way I want them to be. I I would say, I don't think I've ever had anybody come through the door and say, I want to change my own view of the other person. Uh, What they want to do generally is uh, change the whole relational pattern, but they want me to change it. They want me to change something so that they can then feel the results. But I can't do anything other than wake up each person to saying, no, what, what, do you, what are you seeing in what your partner said? What did you hear in that? You know, uh, And let's paraphrase it. Let's look at it. So there, there's a process that starts out with becoming aware that you're actually creating an other moment to moment to moment. And many times it's to defend yourself that you're doing that. And then number two would be, can you step back and try to listen to what the other person's saying? It's the beginning of a dialogue process. And we'll be talking a lot about what real dialogue is and how it's different from ordinary conversation and reactivity.
0: Well one of the things that comes to me again as I'm listening to you is that in the work that we've been doing when we we started this huge project, this film project, we started by asking ourselves what is the true meaning of peace, you know, where is it? And in order to do that we we found ourselves having to be willing to step into war Mm -hmm. and to start looking at all of that and then the questions became or the kind of investigation for us became what's our relationship to the outer mm-hmm. enemy how do mm-hmm. i find the inner Nazi in me or how do mm-hmm. i deal with hatred i mean all the mm-hmm. things that you're talking about now in terms of relationship mm-hmm. it's relational mm-hmm. we we were dealing with in terms of you know kind of world events you mm-hmm. know and, mm-hmm. and 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 stepping into that and really i mean it was a it was a, a profound experience to 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 meet that to actually be able to look at it then listen to it and then let the reflection come back to us and and it was life changing so and, you know if, yeah. when
1: you think about war and peace as you were saying yeah. um that you if you see that they're always together yeah yeah you, you never have just peace yeah. or just war right right war and peace are coming together they're arising together right. And they're, they're coming from some kind of motivation within the Homo sapien right. to do one kind of thing or another. Now, I, I think you probably know that as long as our species has been on Earth, uh, we have never been able to live peacefully. Right, exactly. So we are inherently a violent species. Until we recognize that deeply, again, we won't know. We won't know because we'll feel like, okay, the tiger is more violent or the snake is more violent or whatever. Uh, There's no other species that actually, uh, what I would say, is motivated by ideals and opinions to harm another member of its species. So it's not just that if you come at me with a hatchet, I'm going to come back at you with a hatchet. I could come at you with a hatchet because of what you believe. Right. I could I could decide I'm going to kill you because you're wearing a red shirt. Right, exactly. And that makes sense to Homo sapiens. Right, right, that that, right, that is not a right, ridiculous right. idea because we would say, okay, you belong to that tribe. Right. That tribe has these beliefs. Right. And our tribe knows that it should be the other way. Right. So, you know, the war and peace thing, if you can see these are always coming up together, they're always entangled. And each of us has a responsibility for allowing that particular dynamic to open up so that it can become war and peace so that we can have conflict and resolution on a moment to moment, rather than long periods of time of total reactivity which and is so, war. In
0: many ways, going back to the kind of the the, the worldview, when we want to, we you know, we're learning these tools of disarmament. We're learning how to defuse the atomic bomb that we carry within our own hearts, mm-hmm. and all of this. And you know, in learning this, this is this kind of radical creativity, this deep practice of you know just awakening to this possibility. I mean, yeah. it's very. I mean, it's it's a very. Um, it has, I mean, it has, it has extraordinary nobility. It's like, it's, it's. I mean, what an aspiration!
1: Well, what about the possibility that it has extraordinary humanity? I yeah. mean, I because I like to contrast humanity and ideals. Right. You know. Right. Because well, yes,
0: because they get they get get so lost. That's right. right. That's right. The Very, human being gets lost in there. Yeah, right. Yeah. Many
1: times, human beings have ideals that go beyond uh, our humanity. So, I mean, Hitler's a great example yeah. always, you know, because Hitler had ideals to make everything better. And he didn't even think he was among the better. He was going to make the world pure and better and so on by getting rid of what was bad and evil. That way of proceeding, that way of understanding the world and even feeling um our reality is, uh, is uh, available to all of us. And uh, Hitler just like took it way way beyond what most people take it but it was a good illustration in that way uh, a way of teaching the world that uh, if you follow ideals you lose humanity if you follow humanity you have to lose ideals you have to say okay look guys The Homo sapiens are pretty violent species. We're all Homo sapiens. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, we all want climate change, but most of us are driving cars. You know, you you really have to see that it's a mix with humanity. We're always going to have these violent impulses. But is it possible to use this unique human intelligence of being able to look at ourselves and feel into what we're doing and then have a modicum of freedom not to do it, a freedom to say, do I want to say these words to this person? And if I do, what are the consequences? Or is it possible not to say the words? Uh, That kind of intelligence that examines itself and stops mid-action, can stop mid-action, is unique to humans, unique to humans. And so it's the humanity that we're trying to bring out in the organism. Not, let's say, the uh, humans also have all the animal impulses and so on. We can, you know, and, and we also are objects. If you drop us, if you drop a human body out the window, it will squash against the ground. I mean, so we're objects, we're animals, but we're humans.
0: And you're also talking about higher consciousness.
1: Well, I'm talking about human consciousness human. anyway. Yes. I mean, there's a higher consciousness than that. Our but, higher
0: consciousness but within the human. Within, within the, the human, human.
1: This is a very possible versus thing. Versus the animal. For, yeah, yes. versus the saint or, or whatever, you know, the, yes. because I think ordinary human beings, just regular people <laughs> right. that are pumping gas and walking around. All of us. Yes, we have these capacities. The problem is we don't use them very much because when it comes to conflict when it comes to hostility because we generally speaking feel like victims and generally speaking we feel that whatever it is that sets off our reactivity uh, is fair you know that we that we know what is going on around us Um, and so i like to bring all of this back to our families And our individual relationships, because well, it's a wonderful place to practice it. It's I where mean, it's if we where are in yeah. our
0: in our immediate relational environment with the people that we care about, and the people That's we right. interface with, and uh, yes, yes. Well, and, I mean, and the more
1: you practice it there, the more you understand war and peace. I mean, yes. and so you know, if you practice it on the level of, let me see if I understand, you know, what you're saying. Let me understand you better, even if I don't like what you're saying, even if I disagree with what you're saying, let me work with my own feelings so that I don't have to make them your responsibility. The, The more we do that in our relationships that we care about or with those situations that threaten us. The more we come to understand what's involved on a larger cultural and social level in regard to war right. and peace, right. you know, what right. kind of environment right. has to be right. created.
0: It just feels like it's so essential right now, given everything that's going on in the world. And I find myself, as I'm sitting here listening to you and kind of on the edge of my chair, is that I'm thinking also of the body because I've been in really deep breathing. I've been taking deep, deep breaths. <laughs> but just, again, knowing that um, we allow for the possibility that this could be um, developed in all our lives, and uh, and it just gives us so much more hope and trust in a better future. Right,
1: and it allows you then to say, if, if you can begin to see this, it allows you to say, maybe your species, while it is a violent species, right. while it is a highly imperfect species, has something that is unique to this species, that goes beyond the the animal reactivity, and that makes us human, and in a certain way, we're protectors of human consciousness. Because human consciousness has this freedom to step back, to look at itself, to, to actually not do something, even if we feel so compelled to do it and most of the time these days people are not taking advantage of this human freedom right wow
0: wow well polly i think that's a perfect note to end on today and and we will continue this dialogue and it just is um uh, just creates a tremendous sense of hope and possibility for all of us to just um you know awaken to this level of consciousness and to learn to work with our own minds in this way and uh and to discover places we've never, ever discovered before. Well, so thank you so very, very much, and we'll, we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening, and to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies for More to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.